Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here he is with the corner. The Brazilian. He's going in. There's a fearful crack of heads there. It was sickening to watch. Uncomfortable. And the kind of scene that leaves you with no words, just hope for the best. It was a hefty collision. Lovely really lady was, wasn't it? Yeah, with real determination. Raul Jimenez and David Luiz aerially collided at an Arsenal corner. The Wolves forward lay motionless for minutes. He was given oxygen. He was stretched off. He was taken to a London hospital where he underwent surgery on a fractured skull. It's serious, was a big, big impact, but he's aware uh, and uh, he's with Dr. Matt Perry. A fractured skull. Louise passed the current concussion protocol. His head was bandaged and he returned to action. Blood seeped through his dressings and he was unsettled heading the ball. The defender had to be removed but he shouldn't have even been allowed to continue. Football needs to get real, it needs to wake up, it needs to get serious. Not next year, not next month, not next week, now. Football is still in the last century when it comes to dealing with head trauma, according to Dr. Willie Stewart, the neuropathologist who proved the game's link with dementia. This problem is bigger in football than it is in rugby, than it is in American football, possibly than it even is in boxing. In January 2017, Ryan Mason, then playing for Hull City, received eight minutes of treatment on the pitch at Stamford Bridge after a clash of heads with Chelsea defender Gary Cahill. Gary Cahill trying to attack it. Clash of heads and uh, Neil Swarbrick, as you saw straight away, calling for the medical men. He was given oxygen. He was carried off on a stretcher. He had surgery at St. Mary's Hospital in London for a fractured skull which had to have 14 metal plates inserted with 28 screws holding them in place along with 45 staples. He was forced to retire in February 2018 at the age of 26, but feels lucky to be alive. I was, I was almost 100% sure that I'd get back on the football pitch. It was just a matter of when, but I had some scans and some issues showed up with the brain that, that wasn't possible, you know. I'd be putting my health, my life at risk of... I was to step onto a football pitch. From Mason's injury to the one Jimenez suffered, nothing has changed. Football is dragging its feet when it comes to head collisions and adequately dealing with it. On this episode of Between the Lines, we unpack how dangerous that is and why the proposal on the table, a permanent concussion sub, is not going to help in any way. We look at what the game can do to improve its protocols making it safer for players. Our guests are Dr. Willie Stewart, whose research found that former footballers were 3.5 times more likely to die of dementia. Peter McCabe, chief executive of Headway, the Brain Injury Association. Ryan Mason and Phil Quinlan, who suffered life-changing head trauma at 15, 
on a football pitch that left him paralyzed. The point to kick off at is with the man who is the leading light in detailing football's link to degenerative brain diseases. Dr. Willie Stewart is a consultant pathologist in Glasgow who has spent over 20 years researching this subject. Dr. Willie, I want to get stuck into how this all came about, how you started being involved in uncovering this link uh, with football and brain injuries leading to dementia. Yeah, well, uh, I'm fortunate that I trained in neuropathology in Glasgow and uh, Glasgow at the time I was training back in, in the early 2000s was a, a, an international centre of excellence in understanding brain injury, right from uh, patients coming through the casualty doors to our service looking at the, the, the brain pathology. And, and they'd been in that position for uh, several decades, really since the, the late 60s. So I entered this environment where research and brain injury was just part of, of what we did. And I started working on this. And one of the things I noticed was that there were stories of um, people with brain injury, head injury, um, not just boxers, but, but people who'd been hit by cars and the risk of dementia was thought to be higher. I mean, I looked at the material down the microscope as a, as a, as a project to try and understand whether this might be something we could see down the microscope. I could see that people who, in those days, had, the material I was looking at was people who had sustained a, a single, moderate, or severe brain injury and died some decades or years later. And, and lo and behold, they, they seem to have a pathology there which which looked like we saw in other dementias more than, than they should do. And that made me think, well, there's something in this. Now, about the same time, Bennett Amalu uh, was publishing his paper on uh, the first American football case of uh, what we now call CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but but was previously known as dementia pugilistica. So I'm, I'm sitting looking at uh, people who've been hit by a car or assaulted and survived. Bennett was publishing a paper on uh, the effects of, of brain injury in, in American football. And there's this long history of knowing the problems with boxing. So putting all that together made me start to think, well, if we can see it in boxers, we can see it in American footballers, we can see it in people who've had uh, car accidents, then, then, then why shouldn't we be able to see it in people who, for instance, played rugby or played football, the kind of sports that we're more familiar with? And that's really what began the, the research that continues now. And you were the first person to identify CTE in a UK footballer in 2014. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so at, at the time, this was all beginning to, you know, people were beginning to pay more attention to it. So, so you know, I, I, a lot of my work is with colleagues in America, and, and, and this subject has been something that has been uh, discussed and, and, uh, and researched for, for over 15 years now. And uh, but but it was only in the last decade or so that, that, that in the UK and outside Europe, outside the US, people have begun to pay more attention to it. So, at the time, early in, in the last decade, that the, the attention was beginning to turn to uh, UK sports like football and rugby and and the possible link there to late pathologies. I uh, I was obviously aware of of Jeff Astle and Jeff Astle's case. And a good, good friend and colleague of mine had originally looked at his his brain back in early 2000s. And, and I got contacted by the family through a, a, a newspaper reporter um, connection to ask if I would uh, kindly review his 
uh, Jeff's uh, material from that original uh, diagnosis just to see whether actually the, the pathology described then as, as, as severe pathology and, and, and possibly linked to head injury might have been the CTE. And so um, one of the things that we have in pathology is the ability to go back and look again. So I contacted my friend, um, asked if he would mind sharing the material with me. That material was, was sent to our lab. We did some extra work on it and confirmed that, that actually the, the pathology in Jeff's brain, um, although at the time the diagnosis was thought to be Alzheimer's disease, the actual pathology was this chronic traumatic encephalopathy uh, pathology. So confirming that Jeff actually um, unfortunately passed away of CTE. Can you explain the study itself to us and how it took shape? Because the evidence has been there for a while. Yeah. And 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 I think the the important thing is though that that we we sort of knew about teams like 1966 back at you know the time that uh, we were first discussing Jeff Astle's case or, or so the second time we're discussing Jeff Astle's case of CTE because Don as as a kind of um, focal point for many of the families to to get in touch and share their experiences could bring forward you know dozens literally of cases of former footballers with dementia. Uh, and in those dozens, there were also teams um, where uh, four or five or sometimes six of the team had dementia. Uh, and even then, you know, the 1966, you know, going back to the middle of last decade, the 1966 team was known to have a number of, 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 of players with dementia. But, but, but although we could see these, these teams with large numbers and we knew there were families getting in touch and I was receiving brains from former footballers with dementia, none of this proved that there was necessarily any more dementia in footballers than you'd expect you know it may just be that these are high profile individuals and so we're more aware of them so what we had to do was 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 design a study that actually looked at it at what we call you know the, the population level the, the epidemiological level where we actually look at all footballers uh, and figure out how many footballers there are there with with dementia problems and compare that to a population of people from the population who 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 didn't play football but but were close to them as we could make them so so this is what we did so we, we took this observation that there seemed to be a lot of footballers with dementia and we took it into a population level study where we studied 8,000 former footballers and compared them to 23,000 uh, people in the population who were born in the same year uh, lived in much the same area so as, as close as we could make them were, were our footballers and that's where we uncovered this um, this 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 risk that, that it wasn't just that you know we were seeing more teams and more footballers. There was actually a big problem with dementia in football. So, as you say, three and a half times higher risk of death of gender brain disease, doubling of Parkinson's, fourfold increase in motor neuron disease, fivefold increase in Alzheimer's disease. Quite a quite a problem. That is alarming to hear. If the science on the matter isn't startling enough. Personal experiences of suffering severe head trauma on the pitch should leave you in no doubt as to how serious it can be. Life-threatening to be exact. And why football has to accept this and do better to mitigate against it. Ryan Mason rewinds to January 2017 when a few seconds entirely reshaped his life and left it hanging in the balance. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's... um... It's a strange, strange moment because you never expect anything like that to happen on a football pitch. Um, unfortunately, I was on the receiving end of a of a, of a late challenge, and um, subsequently had had some serious and some complications with my brain that unfortunately ended my career. Um, 
I, I would say a lot has changed since then on the football pitch, but it actually hasn't, which which is probably why I'm, I'm so passionate about talking now, because obviously Raul um, has, has suffered a, a similar incident. And firstly, I hope he's OK. I hope, I hope his family and everyone around him are OK. But it does, it brings back, brings back memories for me and my family, which, which aren't pleasant because we suffered a lot. We went through a lot together. Um, and you never really expect something like that to happen on a football pitch. There's obviously a lot of pain. Um, the head, the brain is the most complex part of the body. It's the most vulnerable. And if, if you damage it, it, it could be the most fatal as well. And um, yeah, you, you obviously have so much pain, of course. But then there's, there's so much that goes on in the brain that you, you can't record. You can't, you can't tell if it's okay or what, what the real damage is. So I'm sure for, for Raul and his family, there's a lot of worry. Um, I, I, Obviously, I've not had a great deal of information of of his current situation, but the initial days and the initial weeks, there's there's so many unanswered questions because you just don't know. Um, when the brain takes takes a whack like that, there's there's so many complications that you can get, um, and it's almost a little bit of a waiting game to see how you recover and how your body gets back to a normal state. To be honest. Um, so much worry, so much worry, probably more so from the family, um, because my situation, I, I was I was so heavily dosed on drugs and I was in hospital for a while. I was at home sleeping so much. So there's so many questions that you don't know what the answer is to. It's, it's impossible to know so early on. Um, so I think that's probably one of the worst things, um, aside from the fact you've had an operation on your head, um, on your skull potentially on on his brain like me and that's never a nice fault because like I said before the brain is so complex and when when you have a when you have an injury like that that requires surgery um it's worrying now you had 14 metal plates in your skull 28 screws holding them in place Mm -hmm. 45 staples a six inch scar across your head it you couldn't open your your jaw your mouth properly and it was only until 10 weeks after the operation that you could do that properly that's all yeah. it's like it's staggering to think about all that it's it's hard to actually comprehend yeah yeah i mean uh... I could have a list of so many things that that actually affected me for so long afterwards. Um, Sometimes I forget. Um, I've got it all wrote down. But yeah, I couldn't look at light. I I was sleeping for like 20 hours a day. I couldn't really hold a conversation. Um, Like I say, when when the brain gets gets an injury, the the body almost just instinctively responds. And it, it almost just shuts everything else down because the main focus is on making sure the brain's okay because it's it's the fundamental to, to how we how we live as as humans and the body invests so much energy into to recovery so your normal things like for me I, I couldn't I literally couldn't hold a comb I couldn't speak two sentences because it was just it just seemed like so much effort so much energy I was sleeping all the time I I couldn't really walk that there, there was so many of these these problems that I had to live with but then also also my family and my people, my little circle close to me had to live with as well, which, which makes it very difficult. It makes it very difficult because they almost live through the trauma with you. So, so Raul and his, his family are 
sure they're going through something very similar where it, it can affect people. It can take its toll, you know, the, the stress, the worry, the uncertainty of, of not knowing the extent of the recovery and, and what the real damage is at this stage. So I, I definitely, I, I feel for, for Raul and his family because I've been through something probably very similar. Phil Quinlan was a promising young footballer in Ireland when in 1989, age 15, he was involved in a collision that would leave him in a coma. After the contact, he was asked a few questions and encouraged to play on. This is his story, which may have happened a long time ago, but it shows that football hasn't really progressed too much in terms of head injuries. Uh, started football officially, uh, organised football at 14 years of age, played for a year, I'd say, and then that's when the, the injury occurred. On the morning of the match, it was very, very foggy in my hometown. And we had to drive about four miles outside of the town to get to the pitch. And the fog was so bad, we couldn't even see the pitch from where the bus stopped. And we walked across two fields to get to the pitch. And you couldn't see more than 10 metres in front of you. And I suppose about half an hour into the game, I, I was playing on the left wing. Half an hour into the game, I went up for a header. And I felt a glancing blow from the, the centre half. Uh, on the other team and we both went down uh, he got up a lot quicker than I did because he was a, a a stronger bloke and his forehead hit the side of my head just above my ear and the referee came over to me the referee asked me questions where are you what's the score what day is it I answered everything correctly I tried to stand up and play after the magic sponge and I was stumbling around the pitch in a daze I was concussed, but I was fully conscious. Uh, I have vivid memories of just be, being shouted at to, to get the ball, to move properly. Uh, and then I just collapsed. And the, the management back in the time decided to take me off then. And they installed me in the dugout and I started to fall asleep. And the guy who was meant to be babysitting me wanted me to fall asleep because normally I'd be a chatty, chatty guy and talking about the match. But uh, he was delighted to not have me in his ear. And then a few minutes later, he noticed blood coming from my ear. So he screamed at the manager. The bus driver grabbed me in his arms and started running with me across the pitch. Now, I don't know whether this is a dream or whatever, but I, I just had visions of when he was carrying me aloft it was like I'd scored the winning goal in the World Cup final for Ireland the following summer. And obviously, he was screaming at me. I presume the screams were celebrations. And then he got me to the bus and the screaming continued, but he was screaming the whole time to stay awake, don't fall asleep, stay awake. And because the fog was so terribly bad, uh, the, the drive to the hospital, it would normally be a 10-minute drive. It was a 40-minute drive that day. He couldn't pass anything with the, the oncoming traffic because the fog was so bad. And at this stage, I think the fog had entered into my head. And uh, I was dreaming terrible dreams, I suppose. So we got to the, the local hospital. I was talking coherently after getting violently sick on the way in. And then I started to fall asleep and they, they decided to transfer me to the, the brain injury hospital in Dublin. So the nurse who I was in touch with there recently, 
She says, I was fine, I was chatty for a lot of the way, but towards the, just as we were arriving into Dublin, I deteriorated badly. And as soon as we arrived at the hospital, I arrested. There was a team around me to resuscitate me, bring me in. CT scan revealed a large hematoma or blood clot, which had to be removed. Uh, and I met the surgeon a couple of years ago. He said it was, it was an easy operation, <laughs> but it was a vital operation. And time was not my best friend that day. We have heard two very powerful testimonies underlining the seriousness of head collisions on the pitch, but experts are united in their belief that football is not treating this problem anywhere close to as well as the game should, and worryingly, it's showing no signs of immediately implementing easy yet significant changes. Hello, my name is Peter McCabe. I'm the Chief Executive of Headway, the Brain Injury Association. Headway is a charity that helps survivors of a brain injury and their families. It's been our view for some time that football doesn't take the issue of concussion uh, with sufficient seriousness. Uh, and over the years, we have raised um, issues with the football authorities. And we've been frustrated, I think, because there seems to be a lack of action uh, and it's very clear to us that football uh, is a wonderful sport. It keeps people fit and healthy, uh, but there is also the potential for um, injuries. And it seems very important that the football authorities should recognise the dangers to players. Peter, the current protocol has club doctors and physiotherapists having to make assessments on the field of play in three minutes. How do you feel about that? Uh, that to us is, is not long enough uh, because uh, you know, it's often the case that um, the effects are not immediately apparent. And of course, the difficulty with a head injury is that your skull is not made of glass and you can't see what's going on uh, inside. And we feel that there's Kind of real pressure to make that assessment quickly um, on the on the field of play, uh, and there is a reluctant on the reluctance on the part of players uh, to uh, withdraw from from the game because they feel that they will be perhaps letting their teammates down and that their team will be disadvantaged. Um, and uh, it's far better, we think, to have concussion substitutes as they do in other sports, uh, rugby union in particular, um, where if somebody's uh, got a suspected brain injury, they're removed from the pitch and a an assessment can be take, take place um, in, in an environment where there is no, no hurry, no pressure, um, and um, there is no disadvantage to the team uh, that they are representing because they can bring on a concussion substitute who can play f either for the duration of their assessment if they're um, pronounced fit to return or um, can um, continue to play because they've been deemed unfit to continue with the game. That, to me, is just a, a really common-sense approach 
to this issue. And I cannot understand why the football authorities have not introduced this already. They are behind other sports. Researchers pointed to the potential of horrid long-term effects for players. So is Dr. Willie Stewart surprised by the game's lack of urgency and proper protocols to diminish these dangers? Yeah, it's it's hugely frustrating. Um, but but sadly, it, it's one that's repeated in, in every sport, it seems. It's, it's like Groundhog Day. So, you know... Um, Boxing recognised the problem with head injuries years ago and, and made changes to the game, and that's fine. It's, 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 a, it's a different kind of sport. But in terms of team contact sports, American football uh, experienced these issues. It had a hard and painful pro, uh, route towards change, which, which in the early part of last decade brought around rule changes, and they've continued to be revised and reviewed over that decade. Following shortly after that, rugby, um, saw what, what was coming and decided to to try and make changes and adapt and took a long and slow process to make changes and adapt, but has got to a place where it's now it's far from perfect, but it, it's an, an awful lot better than it, than it had been. Uh, but it seems like each sport doesn't learn the lessons of the sport before. So, you know, by now, you know, we would think global sport would understand what the problem is and how to deal with it, you know, whatever sport you're playing. But it seems like each sport wants to pick up the ball and start running with it in their own way as if as if the game has never started before. So here we have football, you know, uh, approaching this issue with head injuries in sport as if no other sport had, had dealt with this before and, and they were starting from a blank piece of paper. Far from it. You know, look back, what's happened in rugby? Rugby tried, um, you know, a, a very brief assessment on field, didn't work. Tried a slightly longer assessment, taking the player off the field, um, it didn't work either. Eventually has come to a position where you need to take the player off, replace them with somebody temporarily, spend 10 minutes at least doing a, what they call a multimodality assessment where you test all sorts of brain function in the player, review the video evidence, chat to people who you know were, were witnesses on the sideline, get some idea from the other players what was going on, and then make a decision. And all of that contributes to the decision process. Football has started from scratch with this idea that somehow, you know, putting another substitute on the bench will make head injury management better. The only way that makes it better is if at this moment in time, there's a rule in football that says, if you have a player with a brain injury, they're not allowed to leave the park. And that's, that's of course, not the position. The problem is recognising them. So I have no idea why football believes it has to reinvent the wheel on this. It's just, it's just hugely frustrating. And I think probably damaging to players because, you know, best evidence on how to manage it is already established. Why is football not taking that on board? This question stirs so much frustration and hurt for Ryan. He cannot understand why an action that could be fatal feels like it is being shrugged off. It makes me angry. It makes me upset. So many different emotions because I, I've, I've spoke to quite a few people over the last couple of years. Um, and firstly, I would like to combat the, the actual type of challenge, the perception of this type of challenge, um, just because I, I, find it, I find it very hard to believe that. So if, if, if we actually break it down and, and, and say, so the brain, the head is the most vulnerable part of the body, yet it, if, if you look at the laws of the game, the, the tackle from behind with, with excessive force that's late, that would all tick towards something that was dangerous play. Yet the perception of this type of challenge is always just brushed aside that, 
Oh, it was a 50-50. Oh, it's okay. So the actual perception of the challenge in the first place gets to me because if you look at the laws of the game, no, it's these type of challenges that they're, they're very, very dangerous. And you more often than not get them in the penalty box because people will put their head, I mean, the age old saying he puts his head where it hurts and this bravery, which, which I'm all for. But if you're willing to put your head somewhere that is, it's going to hurt someone else that that isn't necessarily bravery for me. That's, that's, that's quite reckless. It's, it's, it's dangerous and, and that's what I worry about now I was on the receiving end of something where it was from over my shoulder I couldn't see so I was out of control of the situation and I, I got I got this impact where I couldn't do anything about it um, and now I spoke to people I've, I've raised my concerns and I've seen a very similar challenge and the thing that gets to me probably most is that if, if these these challenges were on the floor or with with the foot with this sort of speed and actually not making contact with the ball, then the perception is completely different. And I just find it very hard to understand why, because it can be fatal. Now I, I was so so lucky to stay alive. Like it was very touch and go. And I almost lost my life. And then I knew it would happen again because nothing's really changed in terms of perception of this type of challenge and it has happened again thankfully Raul the the medicals have come back and said that that he's okay he's going to make make a recovery in in his own time which is which is excellent um so now for me it's the time to to make change in many ways the protocol of concussion is is not correct I mean how David Luiz was was able to carry on on the football pitch for me is 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 just shocking. It, it, it really is just, I, I just can't understand. I mean, the protocol obviously isn't right. I look at other sports like rugby, which is, which is one of the most robust, the most physical, the most manly sports you can possibly get. You've got guys that are like 20 stone that are built like, yeah, like solid. And they're okay. They're fine. They accept going off the pitch, going into a room and, and getting a, getting an independent test to see if they're okay. So I don't understand why football is so against it. This sentiment is mirrored by Phil Quinlan. It saddens me, but I think it angers me even more because rugby has moved on a level. Cricket, as you're saying, has moved on a level. The other sports have moved on a level. But soccer, it just seems to to remain where it is and we're okay, Joe. I just, I'd hate to think that one day... It'll all change when a player who's concussed is severely injured and disabled like myself, or it has to die for it for it to change. Like if I if I was to to meet every manager of a football team and all the suits at the highest levels who can change the, the rules, I'd be able to just by looking at me, I'm a prime example of of how concussion should be treated seriously. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Join us for a very Clash of the Titles Christmas because we're doing what every family does at this time of year. Arguing about which film is better. We've proof this pod is good for your elf as Elf takes on Santa Claus the movie. With Santa Claus the movie, for years I couldn't walk past a slice of ham. (laughs) 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 Reaching for it like a grubby... Street uh, We're doing that festive thing of overindulging in sweet stuff. It's the holiday versus love, actually. I've never seen women apologise so much for being women as in the holiday. And yes, they are Christmas movies. We've got Die Hard versus Lethal Weapon. I'm so bored of that question, so let's flip it. Is Christmas a Die Hard movie? (laughs) (laughs) That's Clash of the Titles this December. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Clash of the Titles is a Stakhanov production. Merry Christmas. The International Football Association Board have cleared trials of an additional permanent concussion substitute, but this would not be helpful in situations like the one with David Luiz. Temporary subs, as used in other sports and easily introduced, is a much more helpful tool. Ryan agrees. I think for me, this is, this is the initial solution. Um, we, we see it happening in rugby. And it's, it's very important that when they are being tested, like you say, it's not in the environment where there is pressures because the instinct of many men is to try and cheat the concussion test. I'm okay, I'm okay, and ignore the symptoms. Then you have the incentive of, of the doctor who, more often than not, his boss is the manager. Now, if your team has made three substitutions and you're you're one nil up and you're in a relegation battle and there's 20 minutes to go, the club are doing everything and the staff, I'm sorry, they're doing everything to get that player back on the football pitch. We've seen it happen before and we will see it happen again. We we, we will. And the, the worry and the problem is that David Luiz took a massive clash to his head. Now, you can't really measure what's going on in that brain. Now, David Luiz was willing to go back on the pitch and was allowed to go back on the pitch and, and head balls and put himself in danger because if he copped another elbow in, in that, that situation, in that moment, then that's, that's very dangerous, very, very dangerous. For me, I think, uh, I've mentioned it before, I feel they, 
they need to be taken away into a into a private room and get an independent test from someone that isn't associated to the football club. So there's no incentive. The only the only priority is the care for that individual, the care for that player. And then then I think you can accept it a bit more. As a football club, you can accept it. So he's gone off, he's out of our hands. If if he's okay to come on, excellent. If he's not okay, then then he's obviously got something going on and, and, and the player's safety has to be the priority in these moments. Whereas the current protocol, two or three minutes on the side of the pitch when you've potentially got 60,000 fans screaming at you and, and the referee wanting to restart the game and, and the pressure of the manager and you can feel that energy. I think it's, it's, it's easy to ignore a little symptom or, or not get to the bottom or, or be as thorough as we can be. Peter McCabe from Headway is fully behind this and offers a reminder of a previously unkept promise. This goes back um, many years. And um, uh, back in uh, 2014, um, there was a, um, a promise uh, that there would be um, a, a tunnel doctor introduced uh, and this was following a number of incidents that had taken place um, uh, both at international football level uh, and um, um, within the Premier League in the in the UK. Uh, and on one one occasion, um, Hugo Lloris, who is the goalkeeper for Tottenham, uh, was was clearly concussed, um, and the physio went out onto the pitch to treat him. Uh, and when he came round, he 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 flat out refused to leave, uh, and was kind of quite quite adamant that he wasn't going to go. And both the physio and um, his the manager of the team seemed to be overruled in that moment by somebody who was in no fit state to make that sensible decision. Um, you know, having just been uh, knocked unconscious. And that was the time at which uh, there was this promise that there would be an independent uh, doctor in the tunnel uh, who would be um, given the uh, the role of making that assessment without free of the pressures that might exist from somebody who was an employee of the club. And I think that too it was a very sensible suggestion uh, and one that could uh, prevent serious. Um, damage to the health of players, and and I can't understand why, you know, the, the football authorities haven't moved, and are still dragging their feet. Is football not listening? Dr. Willie Stewart believes the issue is that the game is choosing to accept the wrong voices. In terms of evidence of link to degenerative brain disease, in terms of of pathology um, of dementia linked to head injury. The data in football are probably stronger than they are in any other sport. So, so in fact, this problem is bigger in football than it is in rugby, than it is in American football, possibly than it even is in boxing. Um, Harrison Martland, the pathologist who first described um, the, you know, the punch drunk syndrome, the, the syndrome of boxers, was working in New York. I think if he was working in Newcastle in uh, 1928, he would have described 
uh, not punch drunk syndrome of boxers, but the heading drunk syndrome of footballers. And, and a century later, we wouldn't be looking at the sport of football that it is now. So, so football, I think, has got the biggest global problem, and yet is is making the least progress in this. And you say they have their fingers in the ears. Unfortunately, they don't. They, they possibly have their finger in their ear to uh, the researchers who are independent of the sport and who have spent most time uh, studying brain injury and understanding what's going on and are across the literature, across all sports. So they get the finger in, in the ear that, that, that we might be talking into, but but the other ear is, is wide open and listening to the, the, the so-called experts in, in concussion who work within sport largely uh, and who um, tell them that, that, you know, the, the definitive evidence of a link between head injury and, and uh, dementia is not there. Well, that's that's nonsense. Who tell them that the uh, there, there's a requirement for um, studies to prove, you know, for instance, heading is a problem, um, and and that those studies will involve you know longitudinal follow up of players from modern day era through to retirement. Well, of course, that's that's nonsense too. So so I think what they're doing is perhaps listening to the wrong people because the wrong people are giving them reassurance that nothing much needs to change. Don't worry about this. It's not a big problem. As opposed to listening to people who are outside of the sport, you know, and whose, whose affiliation is to brains, not to sport. You know, I'm, I'm interested in trying to understand what happens to brains and solve the problems with brains. I'm not really too worried about um, worrying about what, the, uh, what, what happens to, to sport or within sport. I would desperately keen that sport continues, of course, because, you know, as well as showing the dementia problem in footballers, we also showed cardiovascular disease was much lower, cancer was lower, mental health was better in former footballers. So there's great benefit, but there's this horrible problem with dementia. Since the Jimenez-Luis collision, a lot has been written or spoken from professionals about this being part of the game that risk will be involved. But Ryan believes this comes from a lack of understanding of the extent that your life and that of your family can be affected. Maybe this is this is an education thing. Maybe maybe these these people need to, to be educated because obviously I've, I've read a lot of stuff and I'm, I've, I'm quite... I understand quite a lot regarding the brain now and it's not, I've not even touched the edges. There's so much detail you can go into the experts say that it's dangerous. <laughs> they say we need to change. Now, why aren't we listening? This this whole culture of, oh, he's all right, get on with it. For me, that's that's one in ignorance. That's maybe a bit of naivety. And then also, it's, it's a lack of knowledge because if, if you've got a family, if you've got children, if you don't know the potential damage that you could cause yourself by going on and, and heading balls while you're concussed then then maybe it's just a lack of education and maybe if you know the risks the the damage it can do not just short term but but longer term as well then maybe maybe everyone will view it in a different way now now the research behind so many things like dementia and and the links with with head in at certain times you can't really ignore it it's it's it's, it's gained a bit of momentum there's there's a lot more a lot more has come of it. There's there's more people studying it, and there's there's, there's more answers. So so for me, it, it's almost at the point. Okay, so so what's what's football's excuse to ignore it? What what are the reasons? Because I can't really find any. I I, I really can't find any reasons to just 
ignore it and carry on with this protocol that we have in place that, that clearly isn't right? Why aren't we willing to change? Why isn't football willing to, to accept that the brain is very vulnerable and we need to do all we can to protect our players? Now, not only short term, but long term as well. That's, that has to be the main, the main priority. Um, I'm not saying that we take heading out of the game because it's such a huge part and it's, it's an art to be able to head the ball in a correct way and it's, it's, it's part of our game. But having said that, the, the treatment and the, the protocol in place, it, it really isn't right. And the more you speak about it, the more information you get, you just, you just almost scratch your head like, why, why are these people in charge ignoring it? Why? I, don't, I, I just don't understand. I, I really, all the, the money, the back end that, that football has as, as a business, as an industry. And why aren't we putting our players first in these situations? I, 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 really, I really don't know. The, I don't know the answer to that. It's, it's frustrating. But going forward, I just, I just really hope that they take notice, they stand up, they realise that it isn't correct how it's happening at this moment because people are obviously going back onto the pitch when they shouldn't be and putting themselves in danger. So hopefully in the short term, this, this can get, this can get changed very, very quickly. Um, we're changing rules in the game, like handball and the offside at will that's, that's happened so much in the last two or three years. So maybe, maybe people need to accept that this is, this is a rule. This is a protocol that needs to be changed very, very quickly. Next month will mark four years since Ryan fractured his skull. Is he optimistic that time won't tick away without us still wondering why nothing has changed with football's handling of head trauma? I have to have faith that it, it will change. Um, I knew that this day would come. I, I knew it. I knew it would happen again. And it's a Melissa, it... it the chances of it happening again in the next 10 years are very, very likely, to be perfectly honest. But I do believe that a change in perception of this type of challenge might even be able to stop it happening once. And then that's enough. That's enough. That's, that's made a difference because people are still going to challenge for the ball. And some people are, are still willing to put their head wherever they they want. And which, which okay, okay, you get that that profile of player, that identity of player. But, but if the perception of this type of challenge is different and, and there's, there's a consequence, then maybe, just maybe, it might make people in that initial moment, that, that split second, think about what they're doing. Because if you're willing to, like I said, if you're willing to put your head into a position that, that hurts someone else, then, then that's dangerous. That, that, that's dangerous play. So maybe, maybe just... Maybe just if we can stop one of these things happening again in the next 10 years, then, then I'll be very happy. Um, short term, the protocol needs to change. I don't think there's any, there's any excuse. The, the actual perception of the challenge, I think that's, that's a longer term thing. And I think that's, that's a tougher one to, to change people's view on it for, for some reason. I, I think that's just, we've seen that with, with the actual protocol of, of these head injuries and, and players willing to go back on the football pitch concussed so the perception of the tackle is is going to be a longer process but I don't I don't see any reason why in the next week in the next 10 days this protocol shouldn't change I, I'm shocked it hasn't happened already because for me it's a pretty simple solution I, I, I really think that but 
I think the more we talk about it, the more the more noise there is, then then surely surely the people in control of these these situations have no have no choice but to introduce a new protocol. Dr. Willie Stewart has led the way in trying to force this. Does he think the game will move with the times, tighten up their protocols, and put this matter at the forefront of its thinking? I mean, un- unfortunately, the, the way this disease, um, the way this association presents, um, it's 30 to 40 years after exposure. So we're seeing you know, 1966 World Cup teams and thereafter uh, now coming forward with, with, with big problems. So, so, you know, we're going to keep talking about footballers with dementia. We're going to keep talking about, you know, high-profile teams, you know, the, the you know, FA Cup winning team of a certain era, the Invincibles of a certain era. You know, we're going to keep talking about these, these teams for the next 30 or 40 years at least. So this isn't going to go away. This is just going to, just going to build up more and more momentum. Uh, and I think football has, has two options, really. One is, is continue to listen to the wrong people and continue to try to resist change because of the fear that maybe change would, would mean there's something wrong with the game and might turn people off. If they go down that line, what will happen is they will turn people off because the continued stories of problems, the continued research which is going to build on this to, to, to you know, present more and more data of, of the risk of, of gender brain disease and probably the problems in football. That's going to continue to build up. You know, parents are going to vote with their, their feet when their kids are, are picking up sport and they're going to be worried about whether this sport of football is looking after their kids properly and, and whether they might be threatening the future of their kids' education and career by, by encouraging them to play football. That's what happened to American football. American football youth level participation was decimated because American football uh, resisted change. So, so, you know, that's one route. The other route is football says, right, we have this problem and as a, you know, a, a global industry um we 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 care about those people who participate in it and we're going to make changes we're we're going to have to just take this and make changes and these are the changes we'll make temporary substitutions restriction on heading as much as possible uh, and and look at whether the game can be modified to make heading safer so you know if it does that then i think people will say this is a sport that actually does care about its participants brains that, that does look after players and future players and, and, and you know, people will continue to engage with it because, because the risk, as I say, of doing nothing is people think there's potential damage here. I don't want to get involved. Um, you know, I'll take my kids out to track and field or, you know, rugby, you know, because rugby, believe it or not, looks after the, the players better. So maybe that's where I'll go. Thanks to all the guests for sharing their passion, their research, their personal experiences and feelings on an extremely serious matter. I hope you have a much better understanding of the dangers of head trauma in football. More than that though, my great hope is that the game wakes up and implements changes that could save lives. If in doubt, sit them out. Between the Lines is a Stakhanov production. Written and narrated by me, Melissa Reddy. Our producer is Charlie Morgan. Our assistant producer is Natalie Wilson. The executive producers are John Teague and Luke Aaron Moore. Sound design and mixing is by Tom Wally. All music comes courtesy of Epidemic Sound. 
Thanks for listening. Tune in next time. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.